are the ones in the front of the crowd preaching to thousands of people. But going and doing big things for God doesn't always mean across the world. He says sometimes it means simply loving the person next to you. So he writes this song about a young man who walks the halls of his high school. And he sees these as his mission field. This young man who's broken because he sees the hopelessness and despair of the people around him. A young man who's willing to step into the darkness and dare to do the hard things. And what really makes him a hero is that one line in there that every night on his knees he prays, God, won't you please help me to reach them? You see, he's a hero because he's concerned for and he's praying for the salvation of others. He's not a hero because he's a Billy Graham. He's not a hero because he's writing and publishing best-selling Christian books. He's, he's not filling a pulpit every Sunday where hundreds of people are, are hearing him preach. But he's this beautiful example to us of what it looks like to lengthen your rope and pray for others. And, and Paul, like this young man's heart and life, is this example to us of what it looks like when we go beyond the walls of a church and we extend to the impact and influence of God's kingdom. And we really are, he really is a hero because he's hitting his knees every night and he's praying and as he's doing that, he really is moving mountains just the same as someone whose name is in the light. You see this young man... This, this story is written about. He's living out what Paul is praying for. And we're going to be in Romans uh, chapter 9, the very end of Romans chapter 9, and uh, the very start of chapter 10. We're going to kind of piggy on both of those. Um, and, and he's writing this, this story, or, or Mark Hall is writing the story, and, and he's kind of given this idea of this is what this looks like. So you can go ahead and turn your Bibles there to Romans chapter 9. Uh, the very end of it will start in verse 31, I believe. Um, and, and as you're turning there, I want to kind of give you this reminder and kind of let you know where we're at and where we're going. We're going to kind of use this same theme of extending the ropes or lengthening the ropes from uh, last week into the next several weeks as well. And uh, part of the reason we're doing that, and some of you have been with us for the last several weeks and months, and you kind of know this is a campaign that we're going through. This is an idea that we're doing uh, because of what we see in the Bible. And we've talked about this several months ago, and so I just want to remind you where we're at. In, in Isaiah chapter in the book of Isaiah, God is preparing His people for the Messiah. He's preparing them that the Messiah is coming. And then in chapter 54 of Isaiah, He really tells them, Hey, you need to get ready for the coming Messiah. You need to get ready because the family of God is about to get a whole lot bigger. I'm about to do something amazing, and the family of God is about to get a whole lot bigger than you anticipated being. And so he gives them this picture of this tent. He says, you need to enlarge the tent. You need to, to lengthen out the ropes. You need to stretch these curtains out. And we talked about the fact that the ropes of a tent are the part that extend beyond the walls of a tent. It is what extends beyond what you normally see and think of as a tent. It's what influences and impacts the area around the tent. And so we've been talking about this for several months now, actually. And, and we're going to talk about it for the next several weeks. Because this is what God has called us to do. To lengthen our ropes. To be out into our community with the gospel. And we want to extend His kingdom beyond the walls of this, this building in this church, and we really do want to make a difference in the area around us. And so one of the first things we do when we want to lengthen those ropes and impact that community is we begin to pray for them. And so Romans gives us this beautiful picture of what it looks like to pray for other people. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want again, Romans chapter 9, we'll start reading in verse 31, and then we'll read down through verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 4. But Romans chapter 9, verse 31 says, But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? 
because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as is written, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over. Yet the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. Flipping to chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, because they disregard the righteousness of God and attempt to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. Finally, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray together. God, I pray that we mean every word we sing. God, that we will not only lift our hands to you, but we will hit our knees before you. And God, we will call on you to fight battles that are beyond our abilities. God, that we will call on you to do what only you can do. And God, we will have faith to know that you will do it. God, I pray as we work through this text, we're reminded of our responsibility and our ability to be heroes. Not because we stand behind a pulpit, not because we stand on a stage, not because we will write a book or preach to thousands, but because we will hit our knees and we will pray for those who are without you. And so, God, I pray that as we work through this text, God, that we are honestly challenged and open to the challenge. God, that this be our heart's desire. And that we will lay this at your feet with our hands lifted high, our heart wide open. God, knowing that you can do what we cannot do ourselves, Father. And so, God, I pray that you speak. God, I pray that your spirit moves in such a mighty, powerful way that we cannot be complacent with where we are at, Father. But God, speak and challenge and move and push us to wherever we need to be so that we are obedient to your word this morning. You're speaking this morning, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. During the Revolutionary War, England kind of realized that they didn't have enough troops to sustain their fight against the American colonies. And so they, they kind of enlisted the help of, of some German soldiers, kind of some German infantrymen, almost mercenaries, if you will, that if they would pay them, they would come and fight for them. And so at one point uh, in, the, in the Revolutionary War, the German infantrymen, infantrymen uh, made up about 25% of the entire British army that were fighting against the colonists. And as the as the war started to come to an end, as it kind of became clear that, hey, England wasn't going to win this, and honestly, these German soldiers, it didn't make a difference. They were just there for the money of it anyway. And so as it became clear that the British soldiers weren't going to win this, the German soldiers kind of made their choice. They, they made one of two choices. Many of them just left, and they went back to Germany. They went back to their life because this wasn't their fight. They were just there to earn a paycheck, and so they weren't worried about it. right? So they just went back to their life. But there were other ones who, who came to America and they, they kind of said, you know, this is kind of a neat place. 
we kind of like it here. And so they stayed. They, they established themselves. They, they settled even with some German immigrants that were already here. And so they decided they would just stay here and they would kind of put roots down here and they wouldn't go back to Germany. They would just stay here. And one of those men that did that, one of those German mercenaries that did that and decided to stay was a man named John Reed. Right? And John Reed became so... He loved America. He loved the, the beauty of the landscape. And so he found another group of German settlers and he just settled with them. And so he started this small family farm. Sorry, my microphone just came undone. That's why I'm playing with it over here. He started this, this small family farm, and he, he was going to raise this family on his farm in his rural part of the nation. And so this was his legacy. This is what he was going to do. And he was content to live his life as this small, modest farm owner. That was until one Sunday afternoon when his 12-year-old son named Conrad was, was fishing in a creek down by the house, in the land that they owned. And so as Conrad was fishing, this 12-year-old boy was fishing, he looked over and he saw something that kind of caught his eye. He saw something that was pretty unusual. He saw this yellow rock kind of sticking out of the ground. And so he thought, well, that's, that's not usual. That's, un, that's a pretty rock. So he went over there and he, he kind of dug this rock out and he picked this rock up and he noticed as he picked it up, this is a, this is a heavy stone. This is pretty big. Not only is it heavy, but it's pretty. I'm going to take this home. And so Conrad took this home and he took it to, to John and they decided that the best use for this pretty heavy rock was a doorstop. And so they took this pretty heavy rock and they put it as a doorstop. They literally kicked it underneath the door so the door wouldn't, wouldn't close and they could prop their door open with this pretty yellow rock. And it stayed there for three years. This yellow rock just put the, kept the door open so it wouldn't be closed. And it stayed there for three years and until 1802, a jeweler from Fayetteville had heard rumors about this pretty yellow rock that was being used as a doorstop. And so he came to visit John Reed and his son, the jeweler, uh, kind of thought this rock was fascinating. He asked John some questions about it and he, he said, you know, I'd, I'd really like to have that pretty yellow doorstop that you have over there. It's kind of unusual, it's kind of, weird, it's kind of awkward, but it's kind of fascinating. So, John, I'm willing to pay you what you ask for it. So you just tell me a price and I'll be glad to give you what you asked for it. And John said, well, it's kind of an unusual rock, and it kind of means a lot to my son. He kind of, he kind of found it, and it's kind of, I mean, it's just a doorstop. So, but it, it, I think if you paid us $3.50 for it, that would be sufficient. And so the jeweler took out $3.50, and he paid John Reed, and he took the rock. The problem was that that $3.50, which would be about $80 today, was less than one-tenth of one percent of the actual value of that pretty yellow rock. You see, what John Reed had been using as a doorstop, this pretty rock that he had literally kicked and shoved underneath the door and used for uh, just to keep a door open, was actually a 17-pound gold nugget that Reed had discovered. And for the past three years, this yellow rock that they had tripped over, they'd kicked, they'd shoved it under the door, was the actual first gold that was ever discovered in America. And it started this gold rush just right down the road in Cabarrus County that many of you may know as Reed's gold mine. For three years, John Reed had something extremely valuable, extremely tremendous amount of worth in his house, so much worth that it probably would have covered his farm expenses for the rest of his life. And yet for him, 
It was just this pretty yellow rock that he used to kick open the door and to kick the door and, and to make the door just stay where it was at. And so what should have been this tremendous value was something very common and something that actually was pretty worthless to most people. You see, I tell you that story not to tell you about your history of North Carolina and Cabarrus County, but I tell you that story because the way that John Reed treated this most valuable stone is the exact way that Israel treated Jesus. You see, for three years, Jesus had been in amongst of the people. He, he had been ministering to the people. For three years, he had been traveling around, and he had been showing them, not only teaching them and showing them that he was the Messiah, but demonstrating, hey, listen, I am the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one you've been waiting hundreds of years for, and, and I'm the, the Messiah that you've been looking for, and your, your ancestors have told you about. I'm him, and I'm not only going to teach it to you, I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to do all of these amazing miracles to demonstrate who I am to you so that you understand my value. And yet the people of Israel saw all of this. They heard all of this. And what did they do instead? They still rejected his, himself and his mission. And so they rejected. And in doing that, they rejected what should have been the cornerstone of their faith in life. And it became the stumbling stone for them. You see, the book of Romans is a great book because it, it gives us such a detailed understanding of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is and what it does for us and what we cannot do for ourselves. And Paul really spends really the first eight chapters, and honestly the whole book, but the first eight chapters, man, he is digging deep into theology. He's really telling you why Jesus is sufficient and why nothing else you're going to try is ever going to measure up to him and why you have to have Jesus in your life. And then he kind of turns this topic just a little bit in chapter 9, he turns his attention back to the nation of Israel and really why they've rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And he continues to pursue, this, and they're continuing to pursue after righteousness that they never are going to obtain. You see, that's what he's writing about in verse 31 of Romans chapter 9. And in that verse, Paul writes, But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. You see, Israel is trying to do something good. They're pursuing righteousness. And righteousness means that you have a right standing before God. That you are approved by God. That when you stand before God, you don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to be uh, ashamed or feel guilty of your sins because those things are taken care of. And so you have this right standing, this right relationship with God. And so what he's telling you is that Israel has pursued this. Which is a good thing. All of us should pursue the, the righteousness of God. All of us should pursue the approval of our Creator. All of us should approve or achieve or seek to approve or seek to achieve the approval of God. This was their goal. And, and Paul's writing, hey, this is a good goal, but it's never going to happen for them. And it's not going to be able to achieve what they're trying to do. And, and they're never going to gain God's approval. And it's not for lack of desire. It's because their method of doing it is all wrong. Their motivation for doing it is all wrong. If we read on in verse 32, he's going to tell us why they have not achieved their desire of, of being approved by God. In verse 32, Paul writes this. He says, why is that? He asked that question. It's because they did not pursue it by faith. But, it were, but as if it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. You see, in the Jewish mindset, and honestly, the mindset of every other religion besides Christianity, the way you get God's approval is that you earn it. You work for it. You do all of the good stuff and avoid all the bad stuff so that your approval rating with God goes up so that one day you can stand before God and you have this whole list of good stuff you did and you can say, God, look at all this stuff that I did. 
Look at all these things that I did for you. And look at all these things that I did. And so for every other religion except for Christianity, there's this set of laws or commands or rules that you have to follow. And that's how you get God's approval, by following these laws. And you have to do enough. And you have to be enough. And you have to do enough things to gain God's approval. And you have to become right. And that's how you attain this right standing before God. It's all based on what you do. But the problem is that it doesn't work. And honestly, that's been the subject of all the book of Romans so far up to this point, and really the entire book. He's showing the people of Israel and those that are in Rome, this is never going to work. In fact, it was never the intent of the laws and the rules in the first place. And he points them all the way back in Romans chapter 4. He points them all the way back to the beginning of the Jewish faith. In Romans chapter 4, verse 13, he says, For the promise of Abraham or to his descendants, that he would inherit the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. And so he takes them all the way back to the beginning of the Jewish people, to to the father Abraham, as they would call him. And he says, listen, the only way you're going to obtain righteousness is because God's going to give it to you freely. And the only way you're going to do that is if you accept it by faith. You're never going to work your way into righteousness. You cannot obtain righteousness by doing good works. You can't obtain it by being a good person. You can't attain God's approval by coming to church enough or reading your Bible enough or praying enough or putting enough money in the offering plate. You see, all of those fail short of the misery that we find ourselves in. Robert Mounts is a great commentator. He writes about this passage. And he says that any approach that says righteousness can be earned fails to grasp the enormity of sin. You see, none of those works, as much as we like to think that we can do, make up for the horror of our sin, the depravity that lives in us. The only thing that can equal those sins is something that's greater. The only thing that can make up for those sins is something greater. The only thing that's greater is something beyond us. There's a power in the blood of Jesus Christ. And I love that we just ended that song and we sang that song right before this. And and I didn't even know that was the song that we were going to sing right before. But what Paul is driving home in this letter is, listen, there literally is nothing but the blood of Jesus that can wash away your sins. There is literally nothing but the blood of Jesus that can make you whole again. If you want to write standing before your Father, if you want to write standing before God, if you want to be approved by Him, the only way to do it is because you let the blood of Jesus wash over you and you have faith and trust. You simply have to admit that this is what it takes to achieve God's righteousness. You have to accept his free gift of grace and you have to accept that the salvation that you get is not because you earned it or deserved it simply because you gave and you were faithful to what you knew and what you knew was that God loved you enough to send his son to die for you and see anything else that falls short of that is nothing but idolatry of yourself Anything else is putting yourself in your own self-esteem and saying, look how proud I can be of all that I've done. You see, when the people of Israel were struggling with and what some people even today struggle with is this idea that they cannot do this. And their own self-esteem and their own pride gets in the way. They're just simply too proud to admit that even on their best days, they're still short of the glory of God. That even on their best attempts, they cannot gain the approval of God. But they keep on with this mindset. And this mindset tells you to just work a little harder, just do a little more. And maybe, just maybe, you'll get to a point where God approves you. But what the song says and what the scripture teaches is it's never going to work. You see, for the people of Israel... And for every other religion, 
The cross of Jesus Christ is not something to rejoice in. It's a stumbling block. It's something that blocks them from getting to what they think they can achieve. They're on this path thinking they're working their way to God. And all of a sudden God puts this cross in there and says, Listen, if you want to get to me, this is how you do it. But someone who's so prideful that says, No, I don't have to do it that way. They stumble over the cross. and They trip over the cross. And they can't get past this idea that your works are never going to be enough. Your works are never going to be sufficient. Your works are never going to get you where you want to go. And so they refuse to take the route of the cross. And it becomes this stumbling stone for them. It becomes something they keep tripping over again and again and again. And so Paul makes it clear the only way to achieve the righteousness, the only way to attain God's approval is to get over yourself, abandon your works, and make this stumbling stone the cornerstone. Stop tripping over the cross and start trusting in it. Stop denying it and start making it the central theme of your life. This is the only way to obtain salvation. Now listen, we're going to go a whole lot deeper in this passage but i got to make this point because some of you need to stop right here. Some of you, this is the message you need to hear this morning. Because for some of you sitting in this room, some of you watching online, maybe joining us from a different church, this is where you need to stop. Because you are pursuing a righteousness in your own life that you cannot attain. You cannot achieve. And so my question for everybody sitting in here this morning and watching online is simply this. Is Christ a stumbling block in your pursuit to God? Or is he the cornerstone of everything? The cornerstone is the chief stone. It's the most important stone. Without it, nothing stands and nothing holds up. And so the question that Paul is asking the Israelites, the question that we need to wrestle with, is Christ something I'm tripping over, trying to get to God? Or is Christ everything that I'm standing on and basing my faith on? And if he's not your cornerstone, he will continually be your stumbling block. Because it is the only way to get to God. And there's some of you maybe sitting in this room right now, maybe watching online, that you need to quit tripping over the cross and you need to fully embrace it with faith. You need to quit thinking that you can do all of this on your own and obtain all this on your own and simply say the blood of Jesus is sufficient. There is nothing but the blood that will wash you whiter than snow. And so I'm going to pause our, our time together for just a moment and I'm just going to ask you that question. Which one is Jesus to you? He is either a stumbling block or He is your everything. There is no in-between. And for some of you, I'm going to keep preaching, but for some of you, you just need to rest there. And for some of you, you just need the Spirit to be working in that question right there, in those, those moments that we have together. You see, but I'm going to move on. For us who have, who have attained this, us who have said that Jesus is our cornerstone, and for us who say that Jesus is our everything, we're left with the kind of the second question in the text. And the second question of our text is, how do we respond to those that are not there yet? How do we respond to those who are constantly rejecting and refusing the gospel? How, how do we just respond to them? I was with a group of pastors this past week, and, and sometimes I get with groups of pastors, and it's a great time. We have great fellowship. And sometimes, I'm just going to be honest with you, here's a little secret side information. You can't tell anybody outside this room, okay? Pastors are just like other people, Right? So when you get together with your coworkers and you have those coworkers you like to hang out with and you, you, can, you can be friends with them, you can be honest with them, you like those people, there's pastors like that, okay? But there's also those pastors that are like, your, I'm going to walk over here, there's also those pastors that are like your other coworkers, your other students, that are just going to complain about everything, all right? And some of you are like, oh, I didn't know pastors could do that. Yeah, they do, okay? 
right? They do, and they do it in kind of in these secret circles when we all get to them, they just complain. They don't, we don't really complain about individuals within our church, okay? Just so we're clear, we're not naming names, we're not doing that. But I was sitting with this group of pastors, and I'm listening to them talk about uh, their churches and struggles that they're facing, and the, the consistent struggle that this group of pastors was facing was trying to, to get people into their church, to, to really get folks into their church and actively involved in their church. And so as I sat there and I listened, and just, just listening to the folks that were much older than me and should have had uh, better knowledge and wisdom than me, I just kind of sat there and, and listened and tried to take all this in because I realized they have wisdom that I don't have and they have experiences that I don't have. And so uh, they, I just listened as they kind of talked about these struggles that they were facing of how to reach the lost and how to reach uh, people that, that are not in their churches. And there came a point in time that I honestly had to bite my tongue and it took everything I could to stay in my seat and not say something. Because what one of those pastors said was that, that he's kind of made a decision. That there's this age group, this younger generation, and when I say younger generation, I'm going to take that as not, we're not talking about youth here, Okay younger than him generation, that he says they're, they're not going to do anything. They're not going to come to our church and they're not going to be involved in our church. And so what I've decided and what I'm leading my people to do is we're just going to skip over that generation. We're just going to write them off as unredeemable and, and unreachable. And I sit here and I'm listening to this man who's leading a church, leading them in this direction just to write off a whole generation of people. And my heart is breaking on the inside for two reasons. And, and it took everything I could not to say anything to this man for two reasons. One, because I was within the age range of the people that he was writing off. I'm looking at a group of people in this room that are within the age range that we were just written off as unredeemable and unreachable. And it took everything I could say to be like, look, dude, you need to come to my church because that generation you just wrote off, they're coming to Cornerstone. And I didn't say that because I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. But the other reason that I took everything I had to bite my tongue and not say anything is because anytime you write off a generation or an age group or any group or any individual that say they don't matter, it's an affront to the gospel of Jesus Christ because nowhere in Scripture do I find any time that we're to write off anyone. What I find instead of writing off a generation and saying we can't reach them, they're unredeemable, we're not even going to try, what I find in Scripture is these are the folks that you need to be hitting your knees on and these are the folks that you need to be praying for their salvation and those are the ones that aren't in your church but you need to be praying that they are somewhere in a church. And so we're praying for people who are not in our church and we really need to know that they are knowing Christ. And one of the best illustrations of that is the way that Paul reacts and the way that Paul treats the nation of Israel. And that's where we get to chapter 10. You see, he doesn't write them off and he doesn't say they're unredeemable. He doesn't say they've gone too far. He doesn't say they're never going to come back. You see, instead what he does is he hits his knees and he prays for them. And when he prays for them, he prays for their salvation with this tremendous amount of passion that he has for them. You see, it's not just a tag and an end of prayer. It's not just a name that's on a prayer list that he, he's buried under all the other things he's praying for. There's this passion behind his prayer for the people of Israel. And you can see it very clearly if you look at chapter 10, verse 1 with me. In that first verse of the chapter, you see there's a lot of verses. And we're going to spend a lot of time 
here kind of working on this one because there's so much here. But Paul writes in chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. Now, to fully understand Paul's passion in this verse, you've got to understand that when Paul uses the word heart's desire, when he uses the word heart here, he almost has a southern understanding of heart, right? When we use that phrase, bless your heart, we're not talking about this organ that pumps blood through the rest of your body, okay? When we say bless your heart, what are we talking about? You need it all, okay? From the head to the feet, you need it all over, all right? And that's what Paul's understanding, that's what the Hebrew understanding, we think we came up with that, but the Hebrews had this idea, this is what the heart was. The heart was the center of everything, Right? It wasn't just physically the, the, the organ that pumped blood. It wasn't just this one organ that did something that made everything else work. It is the center of everything. And so when he speaks of the heart, he's speaking of the full person. It is the center of a physical life. It's the center of the spiritual life. It's even where your emotions and your desires and your passions, they all come from the heart. It is your everything. And so when Paul talks about his heart's desire, this is his everything. Thing. And so if we read that again into what Paul is saying, we understand the passion that he has. He says, listen, this is with every ounce of my being, with all that I am, with everything that's within me and with everything that I have. The one thing I desire more than anything else in this world is for their salvation. I, I, I don't. Paul writes in another letter about his this thorn and his flesh that he's prayed for. But he, listen, he says, listen, I'll take that thorn if it means the salvation of someone else. If it could mean their salvation, I'll endure it. This is my everything. I desire their salvation. And I'm praying for their, their salvation above everything I've got and everything else in this world. My emotions, my desires, my physical and spiritual life, they all resolve around this desire to see them come to the grace and the knowledge and the mercy of Jesus Christ. You see, when Paul says... The one thing in life he wants more than anything else is for Israel to be saved. That's what he wants more than anything else. He wants it more than anything else in this world. And so church, we should pursue people and our passion for the lost should be the same. Their salvation should mean more to us than anything in this world. It should mean more to us than anything we desire in this world. It should be the top of our prayer list every single time that we pray. It should mean more to us than attaining a nicer house in a nicer neighborhood. It should mean more to us if somebody gets saved than, than not driving a newer car. It should mean more to us than having the most up-to-date latest technology. We should be more more passionate about people coming to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ than bragging and posting on our Instagram or Facebook about the deer that we shot last week or having another fishing trip or a job or a promotion. We should pursue the passion and the desire and the salvation of people more than anything that is temporary in this world. This should be our heart's desire. It should consume everything about us. You see, it's not only desire... But it's something he's willing to sacrifice to make it happen. It's he's willing to give up something to make this happen. And even if it means more to him than anything in this world, he understands this world is nothing. But their salvation is eternal and it will live on past this world. And he says there is nothing I wouldn't give to see them come to grace. And he takes it a step further. In fact, in chapter 9... Verse 3, he, he makes it clear that if he could give up his own salvation for theirs, he would. 
In chapter 9, verse 3, Paul says this, For I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from this Messiah for the benefit of my brothers on my own flesh and blood. Do you hear what he's saying there? I'd give up salvation for them. I would trade places with them. I would be cut off and I would literally go to hell myself if it meant they could go to heaven. And this is the powerful, passionate statement for someone else's salvation. It is so easy for us as Christians to say, hey, I've got salvation. I'm good with God and that's all I need. For us who are parents, it's even easier to say, hey, my kids are saved and I'm good. Do you understand what Paul is saying here? If it meant someone else could go to heaven, I'd be willing to go to hell for them. There's a passion there that we as a church should have. There's a passion that we need to see salvation in this intensity that we'd be willing to give up anything for them. And Paul's saying, I would give up my own salvation. I'd be cut off from Christ. I would go to hell myself to give up my spot in heaven. I would do it just to see them come to Him. So listen, church, let me ask you a question. When was the last time, honestly, that you were moved with that kind of passion to pray for the salvation of someone else? Not yourself. Let's say not even your kids. But someone else that you were so moved with passion for them that you pleaded for their salvation from the very depths of who you were, that it meant more to you than anything in this world, that you were so serious about their salvation, you said, God, this means more to me than anything in this world. And I would give up everything if they would come to know you, if they could have the salvation that I enjoy. God, I would even give up mine. Listen, if we're going to get serious about lengthening our ropes and making a difference and impact in our community around us, then we got to start praying like this. We got to start praying with this kind of passion for the lost people in our community because we're going to see that without this kind of passion... This will never work. This will just be another program and another slide that shows up on announcements and just something else that the church is doing. You see, it's not just a program. and It's not just what we're going to be doing. This is the passion of our heart. This is what we should desire above everything else. You see, the part of the reason that Paul is so passionate about the salvation is because the persons that it involves, the persons that he's praying for, this is very personal for him. In chapter 10, verse 1, he refers to them. He doesn't give you a name. He just says, them and their salvation. Right? So who is the them and their salvation that he's praying for? Well, if you just kind of look back in chapter 9, he makes it clear he's talking about the people of Israel. And he's talking about them in, in chapter 9. And so he just kind of leads it into chapter 10. This is who he's praying for. This is the desire. He's praying for the salvation of the people of Israel. And he's doing this. He's so passionate about this for two reasons. One... Because this is a global prayer, right? This is, he's praying globally here for the nation of Israel to be saved. And the reason he's doing that is because if we were to read on in the book of Romans, in chapter 11, verse 15, that when Israel accepts the gospel, they're going to bring others with them, right? And so look with me real quick at chapter 11, verse 15. It says, For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean? But life from death. You see, when Israel accepts Christ, others will be transformed to death 
from death to life. There would this be this great revival. There would be this great missional movement that happens. When Israel starts to turn to Christ, then other people are going to see the blessing of Christ. And us who are, are not Jews are going to see that. And he says, listen, there's going to be this flocking to the gospel. When Israel turns and comes to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, others will do it as well. And so there's this prayer for missions globally that's going to happen. But there's another reason that Paul is so passionate about this. And the reason he's so passionate is because this becomes very personal for him. If you look back to a verse we looked at already in chapter 9, verse 3, I want you to see how he refers to the people of Israel. In chapter 9, verse 3, he says, But I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit, get this, of my brothers, my own flesh, and blood. You see, the people of Israel, they're not just a nation for Paul. They're not just a distant relative. These are his people. These are his brothers and his sisters. This is his own flesh and blood. These are his people. This is his family. This is his community. This is where he grew up and the people he grew up with. This is the people he would share the shops with when he would make leather. These are the people he bought the leather from. These are the people he would sell his tents to. These are the people he did life with every single day. This was the community that he was in. These are the people that he loves and he cares about. This is the community that he's part in. So Paul is passionate because he knows these people. They're not just a name. They're not just an entity. They're not just a nation or a state. They are people he loves and he cares for because he spent time with them, because he's done life with them, because they grew up with them, because he knows them. You see, if we're going to lengthen our ropes, we have to be willing to pray globally. But we have to be willing to pray for the people within our own community, people within our circle and within our sphere of influence, people that we literally could stretch our ropes to. And this includes our family and our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and the people that God has put within your sphere of influence. He surrounded you with those people for a reason. And he's saying, listen, you need to be passionately praying for the people who are your people. The people you come in contact with every single day. Which leads us to this last question. How do we pray for those who don't know the gospel? What is the point of Paul's prayer? How does he, how does he specifically pray? What is he specifically praying for these people? And there's two things specifically that he says are needed for the people of Israel to grasp salvation. The first one is found in verse 2. And he says, I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He says, listen, if you want somebody to chase after God, you want to see excitement, you want to see energy, and you want to see enthusiasm about pursuing righteousness, you look to the Jewish people. They are passionate about God. They are passionate about pursuing after Him. The problem is they don't have the knowledge that it takes to do this. They don't have an understanding of the gospel. And some of them, honestly, may have never even heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. By this point, when Paul's writing this, they may not have heard the name of Jesus. And so sometimes we need to pray like this. We need to pray for people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, there's a lot of people, even within our own circles, and we, even within our own spheres, living right here in our community, that have a zeal for God, but they don't have the knowledge of the gospel. You see, sometimes we hear it when people say, well, well just being good is how you can get into heaven. You ask folks, well, what will get you into heaven? If you were to die right now, do you believe you would go to heaven? And folks will give you this answer. Honestly, for those who are not saved, this is the majority of the answer. Well, I'm a good person. You see what that is? That's a desire to be in heaven. That's a desire to be with God. 
without the knowledge of it getting there, without the knowledge of the gospel. Another way you may hear it is, well, I believe in a God and I pray. I don't know if you've ever heard that. I don't know if you've seen that. They, they, well, I don't really go to church. I don't really believe in church. I don't really believe in Jesus. And, but I believe in God. And I pray. When things go wrong, what does our nation do? We send thoughts and prayers. We don't specify who we're praying to. We don't specify the, the name of who we're praying in. We just simply send thoughts and prayers. You know what that is? That's a zeal without knowledge. That's saying that all roads lead to heaven and all gods are the same gods. And I believe that all gods are the same. That's a desire and a zeal without the knowledge of the difference between what Jesus offers and what the rest of this world says. That's a, knowledge, that's a zeal to pursue God and be with God without the knowledge of how to get there. And so what sometimes we need to pray for is we need to pray specifically for people that we know, but we need to pray they gain knowledge of the gospel. And for some of them, they need to hear the gospel for the very first time. For some of them, they need to hear the gospel in a way that, that makes sense to them. And can I share with you, there are people you come in contact with probably every single day that don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to share a secret with you. I was in high school when that realization hit me like a brick. I was sitting in class one day, and, and we were having some free time. I think we had a sub that day, and, and so there was just some conversations going on, and and somehow the topic of the Bible got brought up. And this young man who was sitting in class, who honestly had grown up with, I'd been to, and this is Stokes County, okay? So in Stokes County, you just track through the same schools. Everybody goes elementary school, middle school, or we didn't have middle school, primary school, anyway. Like, we, I had known this kid. He lived in my same town my entire life. And in this discussion, he had no understanding of like a, a book of the Bible and a chapter of the Bible and a verse of the Bible. Like he didn't understand how that was broken up. And here I am, I'm like, how do you, how do you not understand that? And so I went and got a Bible and I said, well, let me kind of show you how the Bible is broken up. And that was my very first realization that what I thought everybody knew, not everybody knows. This young man had lived within sight of a church his entire life and never opened a Bible in his life. There was never a Bible in his house. And I thought everybody had them. Can I share a secret with you? There are people you will come in contact with tomorrow that have a zeal for God, but no knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because they don't have what we think everybody has. They don't have this knowledge of the gospel. And so for some of us, we need to honestly pray. When you're praying for that specific person, pray that they have a knowledge. Pray that somebody will be able to explain the gospel to them. And this is true of a child. This is true of a different culture. This is true of people who claim to be Christians because we grew up in a Christian culture. And we just grew up in America and so we're all Christians. It's not true. This is what we need to pray for them. We need to pray they have a knowledge of the gospel. You see, but there's another aspect to it. There's a second point of Paul's prayer in verse 3. He says in verse 3, Because they disregard the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they, did, they have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. You see, Israel has not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. They have not submitted or surrendered to the gospel. You see, some of them know the gospel. They've heard the gospel They've just chosen to reject the gospel. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, some of them we need to pray that they get the knowledge of the gospel. They need to hear the gospel. But for some of us and some of the people that we're going to come in contact with, 
They know the gospel. And so our prayer for them is that they will submit to the gospel. That they will not only hear the gospel because they've heard it, they know it. We need to pray that they surrender to the gospel. Some will know the gospel. Some will have heard the gospel, but they rejected the gospel. And so our prayer for them is they will submit themselves to the gospel. That they will embrace the gospel and they'll, start try, they'll stop trying to earn this righteousness for themselves. You see, where knowledge and submission, when those two things meet, that's where salvation happens. And so when we pray for that lost person, we need to pray specifically for them. Now the question is, how do you know which one of those two they need? You ready for this? You talk to them. You ask them questions and you find out, do you have any knowledge of the gospel? Or do they just say, yeah, I pray, but I don't really know that Jesus has anything to do with it. Do all roads lead to heaven? Those are people who have zeal, but they don't have knowledge of the gospel. And so our prayer for them is, God, give them knowledge of the gospel. Or do you have somebody who in your life, they grew up to church. They grew up in the same church you did. They went to the same Sunday schools you did. They've been to the same camps you have. They've heard the gospel. And so it's not for lack of knowledge. It is lack of surrender. And so for them we pray, God, let them surrender. Let them submit to the gospel that is the only saving grace they have. And so we're going to finish with our time together. This is how we turn a stumbling stone into a cornerstone is when this knowledge and this submission meet together. And so if you're here, the question for you is what I asked earlier for some of you that you need to wrestle with and I pray that you have. Is Christ your cornerstone or are you still tripping over Him trying to figure out how to get to God? Are you still trying to shove Him off to the side or are you willing to fully embrace Him this morning? See, you're never going to find a place that He fits in your journey to God because He is the one who made the journey to God. You see, if He's not your cornerstone, then you're just going to keep tripping over Him over again and again and again. And then the second question is for us who have accepted Him as our cornerstone. Are you willing to lengthen the ropes and extend your influence and expand the kingdom of God by simply praying passionately for someone who doesn't know Him? Or are you, is there one person in your community, in your family, in your neighborhood that you would lengthen the ropes to and you would pray passionately for, that you would pray that their salvation would mean more than anything in this world, that you would give up anything in this world for their salvation? Would you lengthen your ropes and would you pray for their salvation? You see, we sang it just a little bit ago. On our knees with our hands lifted high. We pray that God would do what only He can do. Listen, we can't save them. But we should pray that God does. You see, the battle belongs to Him. And the question is, will you join Him in the battle by praying and lengthening the ropes for those that don't know Him? Let's pray together.